Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Big Squid. My name is Justin Hamilton. And this episode, well, it's just you and me. I hope you don't mind hanging out with me for this entire podcast as I'm performing in Melbourne and have a very small window to make this happen. So unfortunately, I couldn't line up a guest to uh, come in and record this with me. But after today's episode, we'll be back to our usual programming. And uh, what an episode. I don't even know where to begin with how much I love this particular episode. I've loved Lindelof since Lost Ed. And uh, you know how I feel about The Leftovers. And the team he's pulled together for Watchmen have been outstanding. And You know, every episode finishes with me talking to friends stating that this episode was my favourite. And I can categorically state that as of this moment, this episode is my favourite. An episode of television inspired and building off Watchmen, a comic that blew my mind as a teenager and taught me so much about storytelling. It has music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, a double act that have created beautiful music and movies, and as part of Nine Inch Nails as well. Brilliant acting by Regina King, Jean Smart, Hong Chow, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, and the rest of the cast. An airtight script full of surprises without forgetting the emotion that drives it all. An actual elephant in a room. Like, literally, an elephant in a room. All of this. Absolutely all of it. And then you have the audacity to hit me with a stripped-back piano version of Life on Mars. <sighs> Damn. Like, it's too much. <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> I wrote on Twitter that I feel like I've been waiting all my life for this show, <laughs> and I know that sounds mildly comical, but I, I really mean it. This has been something else. Uh, in my uh, three-act play this year, the, the Ballad of John Tilde Animus, in, in the first act, uh, which was entitled Three Dances, uh, The character of John talked about his belief in art and how it is uh, the way we comprehend the soul of the world and and how in recent times we damaged our soul. And to me, Watchmen feels like the tonic we need. Well, that I need. And uh, and this episode really hit me hard. I was actually quite teary as the final credits played. 
as he can feel all the strands of the story coming together and heading to a potentially ominous finale. I have no idea where this is going to end, but it's not like the graphic novel ends on the highest of notes. And yeah, I uh, I really worry where this is going. I'm, I'm invested, that's why. And look, I had high hopes for this series and it's exceeded all of them. Like, all of them. And I have full confidence they're going to nail the ending. And I reckon when we're finished, we'll have a piece of art that will rival the original material. What? Sorry, did I just say that? Yes. Yes, I did. I did say that. And uh, that's not poo-pooing the original work. I'm just saying this is going to be something else. And I completely understand why Alan Moore wouldn't watch this and why he'd be against it. And I respect him for being a man of principle. But I'm glad Dave Gibbons is on board. And if he's enjoying it, I hope the next time he catches up with Alan Moore, even if they don't talk about it for long, it would just make me really happy if he just looked at Alan and said, you know what? They did good. They did real good. All right. Let's get into it. I know when I'm excited about something, I can tend to bang on. So let's get into episode seven of Watchmen. And since it's just me, think of it as taking a hammo pill. It's just like nostalgia, but it's just me inside your head, holding your hand as we rejoice over this incredible series. get into it. This episode is entitled An Almost Religious Awe, and we begin with a video recounting the life of John Osterman, the man who would one day become the most powerful person in the universe, Dr. Manhattan. This video is playing in a store in Vietnam where a young Angela buys a movie called Sister Night, Nun with a Motherfucking Gun. She walks out onto the street and reveals a Vietnam that has American and Russian stores intermingled with local shops. People walk about dressed in Dr. Manhattan costumes, a view that is so ordinary, Angela barely acknowledges this strange parade. What does grab her attention is a puppeteer acting out the story of Vietnam, where the Viet Cong are confronted by the omnipotent Dr. Manhattan. Uh, little aside, uh, I used to pronounce that omnipotent as a kid reading Marvel comics, and uh, that was one of the many times when I finally used the word out loud in front of my mum, and she (laughs) thankfully uh, pointed out that it was not omnipotent, but omnipotent. But uh, I have to be honest, even though I know how to pronounce it correctly, I still say omnipotent in my head, even as my mouth says omnipotent. Angela finds her parents uh, after watching the puppeteer and uh, she shows them the video that she's just purchased, but her father is against it. He's the son of Will Reeves, Hooded Justice, and while he is a soldier in uniform, he's very much against the idea of anyone wearing a mask. He tells Angela to return the video, but as she walks off, she notices a man on a push bike ride up to the puppeteer and pick up a backpack that he slips his arms into. He then rides towards the American soldiers and explodes the backpack, killing everyone in the vicinity, including Angela's parents. 
such an incredible sequence, especially as it is a memory and we're starting to, in this memory that is Angela's, we're, we're getting flashes of Will's memory from the previous episode. So already we know immediately that she's starting to get that nostalgia drug flushed out of her system. And the world is, it's it's so strange isn't it like that that whole sequence it it it's so weird because it looks like so many places that have been uh overrun by another culture and uh but but we know it's vietnam and there's there, there's 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 something it, it's a little bit like you know i love the irishman uh but there's a, there's a moment really early on where you have to really buy into the fact that with the uh, technology used to de-age Robert De Niro, you have to, you know what De Niro looks like. So it kind of creates a distance and you know this isn't what happened in Vietnam. So you're so you're seeing something that looks familiar but you're being pushed away from it and then you have to kind of push against it and uh, incredible uh, set design and uh, the, the way that all comes together is so amazing. And then just, as I said, having those flashes of uh, Will's memories coming up uh, just really lets you know what's going on uh, very subtly. We return to the present and Angela wakes up on the floor and Lady True comes in to help her flush out more of her grandfather's memories. Angela flashes back and forth between her experience and her grandfather's and the IV Angela is connected to is also connected to her grandfather. But Lady True won't allow them to see each other because the process of cleaning up Angela is at a very delicate stage. Angela's husband, Hot Cal, he's kind of like the, uh, the American version of the Hot Priest from Fleabag. <laughs> so many times we've mentioned how attractive he is. Angela's husband, Cal, comes to visit, but is told he's not allowed on the premises with the millennium clock so close to activation. Meanwhile, Agent Petey has gone to Wade's house and discovers dead members of the 7th Cavalry, but no looking glass. He radios Laurie, who has decided to touch base with Judd Crawford's wife, Jane, and Laurie reveals to Jane that Will Reeves killed her husband because he believed he might be a part of the 7th Cavalry. Jane sits and listens as Laurie reveals that maybe Judd was in cahoots with Joe Keane. Always appreciate a moment when I get to use the word cahoots. And that the whole plan was to mask the cops so nobody could tell who was who, clearing a path for Keane to become president. So if you mask the cops and the bad guys are masked, who do you know are the real bad guys? Also, uh, the through line from the Cyclops to the 7th Cavalry seems to be coming together as well. Jane takes all of this in and doesn't blink. But instead, she in turn reveals that the plan was for Joe to become president, but now they're aiming a bit higher. Jane presses a button and the lounge Laurie is sitting on suddenly drops into a secret room. And Jane calls someone asking what she should do next. Back at the Millennium Clock. By the way, I... The, the moment where the button doesn't work properly, just sublime. We'll uh, uh, get to that a little bit later on, but there is a, uh, there is a reference there. But uh, let's wait till we get to the squid bits. Back at the Millennium Clock, Lady True's daughter, Bian, comes to do a psychological experiment on Angela for a project she's working on. 
In the middle of this evaluation, Angela flashes back to a moment after her parents were killed. Young Angela is now in an orphanage where two police officers bring a man they suspect was part of the bombing. It's the puppeteer, and Angela correctly identifies him. As the puppeteer is taken away to be shot, Angela is given a police badge that she takes to bed and places with her video of Sister Night. Angela flashes back to the present where Bian reveals that she's been having memories that can't possibly be hers. Angela has afternoon tea with Lady True. It sounds uh, very formal when I put it this way. Where the trillionaire reveals what she knows, including uh, about Cal's accident that gave him full-blown am- amnesia, which she thinks is a little bit weird. It's uh, the kind of uh, device that you only really see in soap operas. Lady True also reveals that Bian isn't her daughter, but a clone version of her mum. Lady True's been feeding her clone mum her mother's memories as she brings her back to life to witness her greatest achievement, the Millennium Clock. Lady True also declares that her father will be back soon. Hmm, interesting. Angela is dismissive of this clock and the plan to save the world. In turn, Lady True refuses to reveal what will happen when the clock is turned on. Laurie wakes up in the 7th Cavalry warehouse where a mechanical device is being constructed. Joe Keane comes and talks to Laurie, telling her that their order isn't racist. Uh, Always a classic move by a racist. But uh, does point out it is difficult times to be a white man in America. And, you know, that is a very fair enough thing because, you know, if if you could only get another white man as president, things would probably be back to normal. So, uh, Joe points out that it's a difficult time to be a white man in America, so he's decided he's going to be a blue man instead. That's right. He's going to go and perform in Vegas with the blue man group. That's a twist none of us saw coming. Back at the Millennium Clock, Angela discovers that she isn't attached to her father via the IV, but instead to a machine that feeds into a large elephant. Angela frees herself of the IV and flashes back to another memory, one that includes her grandmother June coming to adopt her. June and her son had fallen out of touch after he wanted to join the army, but now they're going to move back to Tulsa. Unfortunately, as they get into the taxi to take them to the airport, June has a heart attack and dies in front of the young Angela's eyes. Angela comes to and decides to escape, but instead finds herself in a room with a blue globe of the world. When you press on certain cities, videos come up that reveal all the messages people have recorded for Dr. Manhattan in Lady True's Manhattan booths. Lady True reveals that Dr. Manhattan isn't on Mars, but is actually living in Tulsa, a claim that Angela seems to view with scepticism. Lady True also reveals that in an hour, the 7th Cavalry are going to capture Dr. Manhattan, destroy him, and then become him. Lady True is here to stop them, but Angela thinks this is insane. As she attempts to leave, Lady True wants to know why Angela hasn't asked her who Dr. Manhattan is pretending to be. Angela jumps in a car and drives home, where the 7th Cavalry have her house under surveillance. Cal finds Angela looking through the kitchen for a hammer and tells a confused Cal that everything is going to be okay, that this day was always going to come. Cal is still confused, but Angela explains that it was his idea that everything will be okay. Cal tells Angela she's not being herself, but Angela says, no, John, 
you're not being yourself. She then takes the hammer to his forehead and pulls from the damage that she does there the metal hydrogen symbol of Dr. Manhattan. As a blue glow lights up her eyes, she says hello to John and tells him they're in trouble. Meanwhile, Adrian Veidt has finally arrived at the final day of his court hearing. The prosecution, a crookshank, gives the closing statement, and in return, Adrian gives his final defence. A long fart. The groundskeeper (laughs) calls in a jury of piglets to give their verdict, and the squealing pigs declare him guilty. The Phillips and Crookshanks stand and yell guilty at Adrian Veidt over and over and over again. Uh, I'm just going to look something up while I'm doing this. Normally I can ask a question of one of my friends and uh, while they're talking I can look something up. But uh, I'm just going to have to look this up because I just had a little moment of uh, doubt. Uh, Oh yeah, no, it is um, the, uh, the forehead, Dr. Manhattan's forehead is marked with the atomic structure of hydrogen, which he put on himself, declining uh, a helmet with the atom symbol. Yes, just for a moment, I was doubting myself. I thought I hadn't uh, done a little checkup, but uh, this is what happens when you work by yourself. I could edit all of this out, but it feels like it would... um, Well, it's just not the same, isn't it? Better to just go through this properly. It feels more like a conversation that way. I probably didn't need to add that bit either. Anyway... Let's get into the one-sided discussion. (laughs) Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed how, uh, you know, if Dr. Manhattan is, I guess, our Superman analogue, and we've seen so many versions of the the Superman uh, origin story, it it seems like Angela has a a combination of Batman and Spider-Man in her origin. Pretty much mainly uh, Batman, you know, seeing your parents murdered before you. But there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of Peter Parker there. You know, she sees the person who will murder her parents and does nothing to stop him. Now, in her in defence, she's a young kid, but there's some parallels there that you could imagine that if, if they want to do, this could uh, become a moment of guilt. But seeing the parents murdered at the same time jibes with Bruce Wayne's experience. And uh, having the video there to inspire her look is kind of no less random than a bat flying through the window. Um, We also see that, uh, just like her grandfather, Angela literally saw her world blow up. uh, That whole scene is uh, fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Especially with the bouncing back and forth between, you know, the mask being put over her grandfather's head, the mask being... Anyway, it's just... It's just great. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like this podcast is just going to be me saying one thing and then just, oh, just great, and then looking around at nobody. Um, <laughs> uh, Angela seeing herself in the character on the cover of the video for the black exploitation film Sister Night, the nun with the motherfucking gun. Well, right here, uh, while while it's also um, an interesting point where we get to learn the origin of Sister Night, it, it, it's also uh, a, a real example of why we need greater representation in all sorts of entertainment. So, from my perspective, I might not come from much money uh, and I come from Adelaide, uh, but 
in in all sorts of pop culture, there are, there are lots of white men for me to romanticize about and and see myself in them. You know, like just off the top of my head, I could go Doug Ross in ER. I could go Nate Fisher in Six Feet Under. I could go, you know, to a certain extent, Russ Cole in True Detective. Like that's that's not even really me thinking it through properly, but uh, just three characters off the top of my head. Uh, so I'm well represented. And, uh, you know, this is why I've been fascinated by this for a long time, actually. Uh, having run comedy rooms in the past, and at first I used to get really upset because often if I had, uh, if I, if I had a couple of male comedians on who ate a bucket of shit and weren't very good you know they might get heckled but for the most part nobody cared but sometimes you would have a female comedian on who would actually be okay and maybe wasn't the funniest person on the night but would do all right and the women in the audience without fail and this might sound like I'm being uh I don't know uh like, this might sound weird to you, but th- th- this is genuinely from experience. The women in the audience would be much harsher on the female comedian who wasn't great, and they would just dismiss the guy that was awful. And it took me a long time to work that out. Uh, well, and I, Why is this happening? I couldn't, couldn't work it out. And uh, eventually it made me realise that there weren't enough female comedians performing, so therefore... If, if they didn't represent you exactly, then there would be more pushback against it. See, if I see uh, a white male comedian not be very good, well, I'll, I'll just wait 15 seconds for the next white male comedian to get up. But uh, when there's less representation, there's more pressure on on that act or that person to represent so many different types of people within that gender or that race or that that uh that that type of religion so right here we're seeing why you you need you need to see more representation on on the big screen so you can have all the different facets of uh what makes a person within that uh, representation so you know uh, diversity matters (laughs) i know that sounds yeah, nice one, Hamo. But I also remember seeing Black Panther at the cinema, and I I went with a with a bunch of friends, and I turned around to him and I at the end of it, and I was I was so blown away, and I thought it was a really important film, and and I stated why I thought it was going to be a blockbuster, and I and I had a couple of not all of them, but I had a couple of them push back against me, and and I was trying to explain to them that I'd listened to a podcast where it stated the narrative in America at the time was that. Um, when was the comedian Kevin Hart going to cross over to the mainstream? And at that time in America, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was touring and was selling out four and five five thousand seaters all over the country. Kevin Hart was selling out twenty thousand seat arenas. The narrative should have been when is Seinfeld going to cross over? So, so Black Panther comes out just after I've listened to this podcast. And it was an important movie by an important director. And it had such a great cast. And and I was really enjoying the film. And you get to the end where you have that line by Michael B. Jordan, 
where he states that he'd rather be dead than than a slave and uh, and it re- and it reflected what the slaves went through when they were being brought from Africa to America uh, from Africa to America and um, watching this I, I just knew it was going to resonate and uh, not only did it become a hit you know you saw it permeate the culture. Like I was watching, I'm a big NBA fan. I was watching African-American players uh, doing their pre-show, pre-game warm-ups, including all these moves from Wakanda. I I watched white kids in Australia dressing up as Black Panther and Killmonger because they just knew it was was super cool and they they just didn't care about skin colour. And so... Uh, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but it, it makes total sense why Sister Knight would resonate with a little girl who didn't see herself reflected in her world. Uh, by the way, one of my friends mockingly said to me, "Oh, so I have to like Black Panther because it's por- uh, because it's important." And I was, I was like, uh, <laughs> "Oh yeah." Anyway, I don't really speak to him anymore because uh, he is annoying. Uh, but anyway, Dr. Manhattan is treated with awe, but also disgust. Uh, as we see in the background of one mural of the Blue God, uh, the word murderer is spray-painted over, and he's got these horns. And um, when, when you think about it, like uh, Dr. Manhattan's always been a fascinating character, and in many ways my favourite character. I always found him, even as a kid, I always found him to be quite tragic. Uh, and it's and it's that passiveness. It's like he, even though he can do all these things and he can see all of time unfolding at once, uh, he also seems very much trapped by it. And uh, but you know his passiveness in the graphic novel leads to uh, many deaths, and specifically uh, the the deaths in Vietnam. And I wonder if that's going to come back to haunt him in the TV show. I wonder if the writers of of the series are going to make him pay for 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 the sins that he committed in the graphic novel regardless of uh whether he was tied to it or not. Uh let's get into uh a couple of the categories. I've got so, so much uh stuff here for you. Um I spend too much time alone thought. That machine, the 7th Cavalry, uh, making sure looks like an intrinsic fuel generator. So this will be the way I'm guessing they will attempt to turn Joe Keane into the new Dr. Manhattan. So as we've seen throughout the series, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I don't think we're going to get to that point. But as we've seen throughout the series, history repeats over and over and over over again, uh, but often in ways we least suspect. So I'm wondering, to stop Joe from getting into this machine and gaining those powers, I wonder if one of the other characters could end up in the field. And I'm wondering if it could be Angela. Like, could Angela ascend into a new state of being? And and as soon as I thought that, I just thought, oh my God, that would be so delicious for all the tedious assholes out there who think this show is too woke. Like, imagine if this series ends with essentially God is a black woman, right? So anyway, I had that crazy thought. And then uh, before I started recording this, I headed over to PDpedia. 
And there's a memo that talks about a subgenre of movies called Black Mask that parody superheroes, including one that's called The Black Superman. Hmm. Hmm. Now, that just might be a reference to Cal. But uh, I wonder if it's also a hint of where this story is going. I'd be into that. I'd be completely into Regina King as... uh, the ultimate, the ultimate hero. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I was just about to get into the mum facts, and uh, I hadn't told mum my theory about uh, Cal being Doctor Manhattan, and I think she was, uh, I think she was mildly impressed, <laughs> mildly. Also, a little bit dismissive. Ah, yeah, I don't know all that superhero stuff. <laughs> Though she did seem to be um, incredibly intrigued by Grant Morrison's uh, Black Superman, who you can uh, find in his Multiversity series and uh, turning up in his run on the uh, on the reboot of Action, uh, in that uh, uh, Superman is a cross between Barack Obama and uh, Muhammad Ali, and uh, his first name is Calvin. Hmm. Hmm. So many hmm things. But let's get into... Uh, the mum facts. Uh, mum told me, uh, or as we saw, uh, Cal is reading Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, which tells the story of a young American volunteer attached to a Republican guerrilla unity during the Spanish Civil War, a war that was considered a dress rehearsal for World War II. Uh, it's also an expression from a sermon by John Donne, and in that sermon, Donne states that because we are all part of mankind, any person's death is a loss to all of us. So uh, the quote is, any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. John Donne also states that no man is an island, which is something that John Osterman would have to relearn. So I wonder if uh, this all uh, comes together in that way. Uh, but it was definitely the end for um, for uh, everyone's favourite uh, hot husband, <laughs> hot cow. Uh, you know uh, that I love going full horseshoe. You might find this hard to believe, but this <laughs> this is almost overwhelming because uh, I decided that if we're going to go full horseshoe on this episode, well. Maybe we should talk about life on Mars and how it might relate to this episode. Uh, ignoring the obvious in that Dr. Manhattan has supposedly been living there. I wonder if that footage... So, when I first saw that footage in uh, the first episode, uh, I thought maybe it looked a bit fake. So, I'm wondering if Lady True has been uh, faking that footage. Or is he possibly there and pretending or uh, am, uh, being Cal and trying to live a normal life. But um, but I always felt like it was... I, don't, I, I know it's really hard to look at a... <laughs> I know it's really hard to look at someone who's blue on, on Mars and think, that looks fake. But just compared to everything else, I wondered if that was fake. That also made me wonder if um, the, uh, the Adrian Veidt uh, footage was there was a part of me that wondered if that was fake as well if the seventh cavalry had faked that footage as a piece of propaganda a bit of fake news it just 
so turned out that it was right. I don't reckon I'm correct about that. But um, it was just a little thought that entered my head. But anyway, let's get into Life on Mars. Uh, In 1968, David Bowie wrote the lyrics, Even a fool learns to love, set to the music of a French song called Comme de Habitut. (laughs) Once again, I apologise for the pronunciation. Uh, Bowie's version was never released, and then one day he heard the song on the radio, but with different lyrics. And that song was Frank Sinatra singing My Way. So uh, Bowie was inspired to write Life on Mars as an almost parody of Paul Unker's lyrics. On his 1990 Sound and Vision tour, Bowie introduced the song by saying, you fall in love, you write a love song, this is a love song. And he also has uh, in the past described the song as a sensitive young girl's reaction to the media. I think she finds herself disappointed with reality, that although she's living in the doldrums of reality, she's being told that there's a far greater life somewhere, and she's bitterly disappointed that she doesn't have access to it. If you've uh, never really paid attention to the lyrics before, they're abstract, uh, but somehow personal, and it's... One of those things that uh, the the brilliance of the song is that uh, Bowie invites you to engage and, I guess, add your own meaning. So I wonder if the writers of Watchmen have added their own meaning. I'm guessing that they must have, and we can see the lyrics helping flesh out images we've already encountered. Uh, You know, the song begins with the lonely girl watching a movie alone, hiding in a cinema to escape the awful world but not being able to relate to what she sees on the screen, which is very much Will's experience uh, at the beginning of Watchmen, but it's quietly subverted because Will does see something that he relates to. He sees Bass Reeves and he finds someone who represents him and how the world should be. Um, You have uh, the lyrics about American's icons, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow. Uh, You know, there's just that that image of American excess in those lyrics there. And uh, you have uh, the, the lyrics in the, uh, the chorus of uh, take a look at the lawman beating up the wrong guy. Oh man, wonder if you'll ever know. He's in the best-selling show, Is There Life on Mars? Uh, the idea of the lawman beating up the wrong guy seems uh, quite relevant as well. Uh, if you listen to the original recording, you can hear a phone ringing, which was an accident that happened in the studio that they kept. And, uh, you know... Maybe, uh, you know, we're, we're doing an alternate reality here. Maybe it's uh, Dr. Manhattan returning one of the phone calls. His perception of time's all out of place, so maybe he's uh, calling our David by accident. Look, I'm already getting enough uh, of stuff that I love in this. I'm just starting to throw it. Now I'm getting greedy. I want more. <laughs> I want heaps more. But um, I've always loved that song. It's, uh, you know, the fact that it is abstract. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The fact that it uh, does kind of uh, force you to engage with it. And uh, I, I definitely felt that as a kid, like, you know, growing up in in Adelaide, uh you know, I had, uh, you know, I didn't come from much money, and I, I did kind of know that there were, there was something out there. There was something out there that uh, I wanted to connect with, and I, I was pretty lucky actually. Uh, for the most part, I did, and uh, that was through the the world of comedy, and it's been very healthy for me, and it's been I've been very lucky to have twenty five years in this career. But it's funny, I'm I'm feeling that again. I'm feeling that sense that there are there's something else out there, that there are people out there that, you know, I need to connect with uh, people that I need to meet. And it's not to uh, denigrate the experience of uh, comedy in the comedy world, but I feel very disconnected from my life and... Uh, Recently, when I came, when I first came down to Melbourne, the first couple of days, uh, I was staying in the the suburb Fitzroy that I'd lived for thirteen years, and uh, I very much wandered about it, feeling like a ghost, uh, almost unseen, going back and forth to the places that I used to know, back to front, and uh, I think maybe next year there will there will be a desire to go and go and find uh, whoever the next people are that I should be spending time with. And that song has always spoken to me in that way. So uh, I'm guessing you'd be a fan of it. I'm guessing you would listen to it and would be across it. But if you haven't, uh, or you haven't listened to it in a while, like I mean properly listen to it. I don't mean have it on the background. Actually sit and put some headphones on and or or lay alongside the stereo and really listen to it and feel it feel that song and the way it uh will seep in it'll it'll get right inside of you and and, and illuminate parts of your brain that i think that we forget are there and uh i, th- I think you'll get a, a a tasty different uh perspective on it as well but i hope so anyway um but uh Yes, I was genuinely just a little bit teary as I was watching that. As a, I felt very overwhelmed by the, <laughs> how much I'm really loving this. Okay, let's get into the squid bits. Now, uh, I have to do a big shout out to Carl Ryan. Uh, he wrote to me on Facebook and he reminded me that the Superman radio serial was used to fight the KKK in real life, which draws more parallels between Will Reeves and uh, and Superman. I had uh, completely forgotten about this. Like, I, I did know it, but I'd completely forgotten about it. So, uh, a big shout out to Kyle. Thank you very much for reminding me. Uh, the radio serial was... Uh, big massive hit in the 1940s and it was such a big hit it introduced concepts like kryptonite 
uh, Jimmy Olsen and the whole truth, justice and the American way creed. In the post-World War II era, the Klan had a resurgence in, in the States. So when a young writer and activist, Stetson Kennedy, decided to expose the Klan, he wrote a 16-episode series entitled Clan of the Fiery Cross, which exposed many of the KKK's most guarded secrets, including code words and rituals, which helped strip them of their mystique. Uh there is an article that Kyle has posted over at the Big Squid with Justin Hamilton Facebook page. So that just gives you a little taste of it. And uh, you should uh, head over there to see the rest of the article that Kyle posted. But um, isn't that great? Like, I'd, uh, I'm so glad that he reminded me about that. Uh, it's, um, you know, there's the idea. Um, what is it in uh, Grant Morrison's Flex Mentallo where he talks about... Um, the bomb. The bomb was an idea, but then we created an even greater idea, and that idea was, you know, the idea of Superman. And it, it, it's so it's so funny to have Watchmen playing out now. And did you recently see? And I, when I say recently, I mean I mean in the last couple of days, where this memo got out from Warner Brothers, where they just didn't know what to do with Superman. Like, they're just like, oh, he's irrelevant. Like, he's he's out of touch. Like, how do we how do we make a Superman story that, that will really reflect the world we live in today? And it's like, are you insane? Are you absolutely insane that Superman isn't relevant today? Like, he's an immigrant who loves his adopted home. And does his best with what he has at his disposal. And his enemy, his greatest enemy, is a billionaire who's intimidated by this person who is better than him and will do anything to ruin the immigrant, even if it means to their own personal detriment. Just have a think about that for a moment. Like that couldn't be more relevant. <laughs> oh my god. You know, let uh let Mark Bernardin have a crack at it. Get um you know, I know it's a cliche to put Michael B Jordan in everything. Uh but you know, let him let him play the African American version of Superman. Like have lots of super uh supermen, you know, from parallel worlds, you know. I think uh I think I think Superman's irrelevant when you don't know what to do with him. Like you, when you when you turn him into someone who just punches on, anyone anyone who's read All Star Superman by Grant Morrison and uh, and uh, Frank Quietly, just that beautiful page. There's that beautiful page in issue ten or chapter ten, depending on how you read it, where he uh, he comes and saves that uh, young goth girl before she does something terrible. It looks like she's about to commit suicide and. Uh, when he arrives and he puts his arms around her and he and he and he tells her that she's stronger than she realizes, and I've read where that where that saved people. People have read that and and have felt stronger, and and that gets right back to the 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 fact that it it's a better idea. We came up with a better idea, like ink and color on on a page was powerful enough for someone to read and and feel stronger. And there's something 
extremely beautiful about that, and I and I love that the that uh, the character has been fighting the KKK in radio serials. He's he he's always been a great character. He's just had you know, there's no bad characters. There's just bad writing, <laughs> right? Um, let's get back to some other squid bits before I turn this into uh, me getting all soppy about how much uh, I, I love a good Superman story. Uh, oh, you know what? If um, For those of you who are new to comics and you would like to read a Superman story, but you are a little bit intimidated by all of it, All-Star Superman is perfection. But there is... Uh, and you'd be rapt to hear this if you didn't know about it. I'm sure most of you will, but um, there's a there's a an annual, a Superman annual by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons called uh, I think it's called For the Man Who Has Everything, and it's Superman's birthday, and Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman go to his fortress of solitude to help him celebrate, and when they arrive, uh, a villain has given him this plant that has attached itself to his chest and it gives him what he really wants and inside his head is a dreamlike state where Krypton never exploded and he's a family man with his father and it is <laughs> magnificent and it is it's pre-watchman it's like the these two are using superman as a um, as a dry run but if you've never read that uh, that is a, that, that's a really good one-off story yeah, to just give you a sense of it without feeling like you're being bogged down with uh, all that uh, continuity. Um, right, more squid bits. In the video at the beginning of the episode, we're reminded that John Osterman is the son of an immigrant before becoming Dr. Manhattan, drawing more parallels with Superman. Maybe I should have read that bit before I went on my Superman rant. But uh, I got too excited. <laughs> Here's more about Superman. No, I won't. I won't do that to you. Uh, <laughs> um, while Hooded Justice was white in the original graphic novel, uh, I, I've, I've read some people who've been a bit upset about the changing of this character. But um, it, what I find very funny about that is this is very much in keeping with a lot of the way Alan Moore approaches his work. So if you go and read uh, Miracle Man, or for my UK friends, uh, Marvel Man, that's exactly what he did there. He took a he took an old uh, character and in the 80s revitalised that character by kind of giving it a, a spin of, you know, everything you knew about this character is wrong. But didn't invalidate the stories that came before, but sort of incorporated them into this uh, new world. And uh, if you've never read Miracle Man, uh, Alan Moore's run on that is, uh, you know, it's quite brilliant. It's kind of like the lost, one of the lost uh, masterpieces uh, from from Alan Moore, uh, especially the last uh, third of stories with uh, beautiful, beautiful artwork by uh, John Toddleben. Um Oh, and also, while I think of it, that's exactly what he did with DC Swamp Thing as well. He, he he took the character, took the core of what made the character unique, and then completely spun it around and turned it into something so much more. And it, and by giving it that spin, it doesn't invalidate what happened in the past. It just shines a, a new light on it. So, uh, 
many kudos to the writers of the Watchmen series who have, in many ways, pulled the ultimate more is more on the original piece with how they've uh, revamped uh, and revitalised and given us a new spin on uh, on Hooded Justice. Uh, I'd forgotten this piece of trivia, but while I was doing some research online, uh, found and was reminded that Hooded Justice was originally going to be called Brother Knight. So that brings us another nice through line to Sister Knight. Um, If you've been reading PDpedia, and I know some of you haven't, but uh, I love it and I can't wait to get to it. And and, uh, this is one of the rare times that I read it before I uh, uh, started recording this. Sometimes I like to record the podcast and then discover these things later, but I was uh, was itchy. I was itchy for this episode. (laughs) I needed to know more. Um, But if you've been reading PDpedia, it was revealed that Dan Dryberg, uh, who was Night Owl in the comic, who hooked up with Laurie, uh, and the two of them fought crime for a while as uh, uh, Laurie took on the comedian as a, as a title, as in homage to her father, the comedian. Um, but Dan designed Laurie's Dr. Manhattan-inspired dildo. Maybe my favourite sentence of this podcast. And uh, names it Excalibur, uh, which is, of course, the fabled sword of King Arthur. Now, if you put together Cal Abar's name with the fact he's Laurie's ex, you get ex-Cal Abar, Excalibur. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, I love this kind of stuff. It's like it's hiding in in plain sight. Like, what's what's, what's happening here? Then uh, have a a think about this. Uh, Sister Knight, she's a nun. And who are nuns married to? Uh, They're married to God. This, this whole time, uh, Angela's been married to uh, John Osterman. Oh, this is all great. I just love it. Um, the elephant in the room turns out to be a metaphor in Dr. Manhattan and a literal elephant in a room, siphoning all of the excess memories. It makes sense as an elephant never forgets. And But what what I'm really curious about is I'd love to see the memories from the elephant's point of view. You know how we saw... We see Angela becoming a part of uh, Will's memories. I wonder if the elephant sees himself as, uh, or herself as, uh, uh, as part of these memories. I, I see. This is where I'd take season two. I do season two completely from the elephant's point of view, flashing back and forth in these uh, memories of being a superhero. What a big, cute little cartoon, wouldn't it? <laughs> Um, we now know that Joe Keane was to destroy, uh, wants to destroy Dr. Manhattan, take his powers. So that means, like all good comic stories, at some point our divided heroes must team together to stop the one foe they can't defeat alone. So what I'm hoping for is a hero shot of Sister Knight, Laurie Blake, who of course is the second Silk Spectre, Pirate Jenny, Red Scare, Looking Glass, and Lube Man. Imagine... Imagine them all together as, uh, you know, in the the Avengers, the first time they team up and it's that, that shot that goes around in a circle. It would be, it would look so funny in this. It would look so wrong, but I, I'm totally into it as an idea as well. Uh, when Lady True says her father will be there soon, it made me wonder, are we going to see Edward Blake 
brought back, uh, who, of course, was the comedian from the graphic novel. This would be pretty amazing as that would uh, really tick the boxes of the theory that we've played around with on this podcast where we were wondering if Lady True and Laurie are half-sisters. So that's very exciting. I'm into that as an idea. Is the trial for Vite a sham? Uh, the wink from Crookshank uh, would suggest this is all for show. Um, so I'm really curious as to know uh, where that will be going. They also look very scared of the pigs, like they weren't certain what they could actually be. I wonder if they'd seen pigs before. They do get their tomatoes from trees and try to cut cake with horseshoes. And did you also notice, uh, once again, we went from a shot of Adrian Veidt's face straight to the statue of him in Lady True's uh, uh, sanctum. So I'm still starting to... I'm still thinking, is, it, is is that him trapped in there or is that who or what he's been turned to? I can't wait to see how this dovetails into uh, the main story. I, like, I, I, like, I honestly can't wait. It's only two episodes. Like, I have complete faith that this is going to happen, but I, I honestly don't know how it's going to happen. But I know it will. I just can't see how they're going to do it. Uh, I wrote this little note, Regina King and Justin Theroux might be my favourite actors when it comes to swearing. I've always thought that swearing was funny and clever, and you've got to know how to swear. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and I just, <laughs> when they swear, like, geez, all the women in this were swearing like troopers, and they were so good at it as well. It was great. Uh, oh, so here's another little Bowie reference uh, in the show. Um, this is lyrics from the song Saviour Machine, which is off the album The Man Who Sold the World. And that starts off with the lyrics, President Joe once had a dream. The world held his hand, gave their pledge, so he told them his scheme for a saviour machine. So check out the rest of the song on the album, where more of the lyrics feel potentially relevant. But that was a uh, that was a little thing that popped into my head. Uh, I, she said President Joe, I was, it took me ages. And uh, I have to be honest, I went off and, uh, like I did, I, I watched the episode, I, I did all my research, I did all the work to prepare this podcast, and then uh, I had to go and do my gig. And, and I, I have to be honest, I was on stage performing when I had those lyrics pop into my head. And I don't know what that says to me about the, uh, the way my head works or the way the gig was playing gig was good i'm not complaining about the gig but um yeah just in the middle of this gig <laughs> little little voice in the back of my head to say hey save your machine president joe i was like oh so um i wonder if that you know like there must be coincidences but i'm sure that um i don't know this one that one doesn't feel like a total coincidence you know there's bowie fans on the, on that uh writing stuff there's Someone's being very clever. Uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise that Jane Crawford would have uh, a meteor role as uh, Frances Fisher. She's just too good an actor to have as, a, as you know, the, the wife. Do you know what I mean? And how good was her acting when... Uh, when she just kind of stares Laurie down? That was, uh, that was a nice little... Um, you know, subverted play on Rorschach and Night Owl talking to Ozymandias. Uh, the, the way she, 
the way she just stared Laurie down and, and then tried to get her to fall into her trap door. All of that was great. Uh, I hope they have more scenes opposite each other. Um, the intrinsic field generator and the teleporter used by Vite in the comic, uh, it, it obscures Dr. Manhattan's ability to see what is happening in the future. And it appears that Lady True can see time to a certain extent as well. So I wonder if the that they have to get everything done before the the hour or uh, before uh, the next hour appears because maybe everything's murky past it because of uh, the Seventh Cavalry about to turn on their generator. So she seems to know, she seems to be able to tell time uh, or read time to a certain extent because remember the farm as well. So I wonder if the, the, the Seventh Cavalry's generator will go off and just make things a bit difficult which will put Dr. Manhattan in trouble. Uh, trouble, but it will also have uh, Lady True having difficulty seeing where everything's going. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed Joe Keane's sensitivity to being called a racist while espousing racist beliefs. Uh, that is right out of the Donald Trump playbook. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump, his father was shot in the previous episode by Hood of Justice. <laughs> um, now, on Pedipedia, uh, that, like the Excalibur thing that I was telling you about before was uh, delicious, but on Pedipedia, we also learned that Calvin's last name is Jelani, J-E-L-A-N-I. So uh, I looked up what that name meant, and on Urban Dictionary, Jelani is a is a, a a cool guy who everyone wants to hang out with, and he's fun, hot, athletic, and the life of the party. A big man on campus, and that really seems to sum up Cal. Uh, the African American, uh, or the, uh, uh, the the husband of Angela, and also uh, Doctor Manhattan, right there. Uh, it looks like um, if you seen the trailer for next week, I don't normally watch the trailers, but I was uh, it was like it was like I got everything I wanted in this episode, and I was really greedy, and I needed an extra forty five seconds. But uh, it looks like uh, Doctor Manhattan falls in love with Angela. And uh, a god falling in love with a mortal woman is also in keeping with mythological tropes that permeate the whole Watchmen series. And I love the idea of falling in love from afar. There's, there's, there's something really quite beautiful about that, something very romantic about it. And while this team has told us a brutal and confronting story without, without you know, mincing on the, on, the, on the terrible racist side of things and the way people are treated and trauma, etc. They've also not let us forget that their characters, uh, that, that they feel love and they, and they want to feel love. And uh, they never forget to love, even if they are at times uh, not very good at expressing it. But um, I love the romantic notion of being in love with someone from afar. Uh, there's an Elliot Smith song, uh, XO Waltz number two, I think it is, that has the line, I'm never going to know you now, but I'm, oh, what's the line? I'm going to love you anyhow. I, I'm never going to know you now, but I love you anyhow. Anyway, I'm, I'm ruining the lyric a little bit, but that is, uh, that's, uh, that as a, as a line has always resonated with me, and I think there's something really quite uh, uh, adorable about that. Uh, the Seventh Cavalry trying to take Dr. Manhattan's powers and position is another example of appropriation about to take place. Uh, this makes me want Angela to end up with his powers even more. 
we hear the song Living in America, which features in Rocky Four. That's the movie where Rocky beats the scary Russian Drago and wins the Cold War. And I wonder if in this world, Living in America appeared in a different movie, because there was no Cold War by this stage. So I wonder if that was just a song that James Brown made. Interesting little knock-on effect. Suddenly the Watchmen world isn't so good if you don't have Rocky beating Drago to win the Cold War. Oh, they don't know what they're missing out on. Uh, on the video rack, there's a video for Fog Dancing, which we've already seen being read as a book at the start of episode four. That book, of course, was written by Max Shea, who wrote Tales of the Black Freighter comic and who helped create the big squid for Vite before being killed in the cover-up. And other videos include Silk Swingers, which appears to be a riff on a B-movie that Laurie's mum, Sally Jupiter, starred in called Silk Swingers of Suburbia. Very tough movie to uh, say that you love if you have a lisp. There's also kids' videos for Trunky, the Brave Little Elephant, and Tusky, which, uh, you know, when you first see it, you don't really think too much, and then you see uh, a literal elephant in a room, and you go, hmm, yeah, there, there have been elephants all the way through this. Um, we should have known that Jane Crawford couldn't be trusted, not just because of uh, the actor, but um, she rides up on a pale horse. There's a sweet bit of uh, foreboding imagery right there. Um, is Lady True harvesting people's wishes and dreams because she's not only going to stop the Seventh Calvary, but she's also going to broadcast memories to the masses? So I'm wondering if maybe Lady True will wipe out the history of superheroes so the world returns to what it should have been. And I wonder if that will end up being our world. Imagine if Lady True wipes out, you know, Vietnam being... Uh, uh, won by America, if they if they manage to get rid of Dr. Manhattan and it uh, turns into this uh, very uh, different world which uh, ends up being ours. Is that is that too much of a twist? I'd be into that. Uh, also, I kind of, you know, like this episode Lady True was feeling like a hero, but she talks in a way that is not dissimilar to her hero, Adrian Vi. Villains never think that they're uh, well, rarely think that they are villains. That's why it's always funny when, uh, in comics, you know, a group of villains get together and they call themselves the Masters of Evil. <laughs> it's like, why are, they, why are they just saying that they're evil? Why don't they just say, the Masters of what should be right? You know, that kind of seems like it would be better. Uh, the title of the episode comes directly from the comic in which Dr. Manhattan says about his time in Vietnam. He says, The Viet Cong are expected to surrender within the week. Many have given themselves up already. Often they ask to surrender to me personally. Their terror balanced by an almost religious awe. Maybe with Lady True in mind, there's maybe they're getting ready to surrender. That's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, in an episode that revolves around Dr. Manhattan, this episode also tells the story in a way that at times resembles how he experienced his life. So this time through Angela, uh, having the memories bounce back and forth. Uh, so that kind of uh, resembles uh, the chapter four of the graphic novel in some ways. Uh, Angela is a young girl asked to listen to the execution near her orphanage. And it is important because it shows us that her origin story is enveloped in terror and violence and that terror and violence uh, comes through with what she physically experiences and possibly through her DNA as well. 
uh, the repeated images of Will having a bag over his head and then the terrorist having one placed over his begs us to question where we stand morally with every moment of violence. The puppeteer using the Dr. Manhattan marionette to act out his story is a synecdoche for how the government used the real man himself. Uh, The defaced image of Dr. Manhattan looking down on a young Angela also suggests that despite the power fantasies of the American military, some people are destined to experience the world in their own way. From the violence of World War I through to Tulsa to Vietnam, it feels like Angela never really had an opportunity to escape being in uniform and also being Sister Knight. I'm really starting to lean into Angela being the little girl who throws the brick in the air to kill God. Maybe Joe Keane is about to have something crack his noggin in a way he never saw coming. That would be super cool. Uh, I've already uh, pointed out uh, that nuns marry God, so of course a nun with a gun would marry Dr. Manhattan. Uh, Angela talking to us reminded me of Grant Morrison's issue of Animal Man when the lead character talks directly to us. It was like she was telling us that shit is about to get real. Uh, According to writer Claire Kieschel, the trapdoor malfunction was inspired by an SNL parody commercial. Uh, So if you go and follow Claire on Twitter, she has uh, linked that uh, on her account. So go and check that out. Uh, This episode was directed by David Semmel and written by Stacey Ossie-Karura and Claire Kieschel. And uh, they did a magnificent job. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, Like, I hope you didn't mind just having me alone for this one, but uh, I wanted to get this out here for you as soon as possible. So uh, later this week, my friend Wayne Hunt joins me for Chapter 7 on the graphic novel, and then next week... We'll see the triumphant return of Alexi and Ben, uh, who will help us break down episode eight. Think of this as yeah, <laughs> as a as a as the the big swing episode, I guess. Uh, if you'd like to chat with some of the big squid gang, uh, head over to our Facebook page and join in the fun. Uh, there's a there's a great bunch of people over there who are just all loving this and. We'd love you to come and join us and and talk about your wild theories. We've only got a few more episodes to go. And I'm a bit sad about that. (laughs) Like, I think it's really good that it's only nine episodes and it's packed and there's just so much to, you know, really dig into and enjoy. But um, I've also really enjoyed doing this. And I've really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you guys. So so if you're enjoying it as well and you would like some more, please come over to the Facebook page. Uh, we also have a private page that anyone can join. Uh, it's just private so you can talk freely without having to write spoilers and capital letters before you have a chat about what you're thinking. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a friendly review and maximum stars at whichever platform you use. Uh, a quick plug... For people in Adelaide, I'll be performing at the Rhino Room on the 20th of December doing a personal year in review uh, with some uh, Adelaide uh, acts that I'm really looking forward to hanging out with. Tickets can be found at adelaidecomedy.com and that will be my last gig for the year. And then I'll be off writing a new stand-up show, uh, which has the very dumb (laughs) title of, and Hamo was his name, oh... And I'm also writing a new John Tilt Animus show, Time is the Fire, uh, which is a quote that I found uh, 
in the uh, Grant Morrison comic Multiversity. And it was the one that centres on the Charlton heroes in which he wrote his version, a one-off version of a Watchmen comic using the characters that that inspired Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. So everything comes together. Even this podcast is layered. Um, just between us, I have a plan for a one-off Big Squid episode for the beginning of next year. I won't tell you what it is. But um, I reckon it'll come out on. Once this finishes, I'll have a little bit of uh, a break, and then we'll. Uh, I'll I'll do that one off on I don't know maybe January eighth, hmm. and uh, then we'll uh, unveil where we think this podcast will be going next. But why give you all the information now? I've learned from these writers. Just throw a little, few hints. Let people work it out for themselves. I want to keep you around longer. <laughs> um, anyway, what a great day. I've had a really, really fun day. I've really enjoyed this episode. I'm going to go because I could just spend the next hour and a half just going, just great, just great. Made me feel really good about a lot of shit in the world, that this is there, that these, that these people are out there creating this for us. I'm wrapped. So just remember... Cow was Dr. Manhattan all along, and nothing will ever be the same. I'm going to go to bed, headphones on, and I'm going to drift off to sleep listening to Life on Mars. Until then. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.